Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 161. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the award-winning artist, historian, cartoonist, and educator, Robert Brunel Jr. Hello. Robert, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Been busy lately. So this is your... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, uh, last weekend I was at the Vermont Sci-Fi Con and had a lot of fun. Some of our fellow Vermont uh, Comic Creators Group folks were there and uh, sold several books, so I had a lot of... So this is good, and as, as you said, since the last time you've been on, you've been producing, I think you've published at least four four books since you've been on last. Um, and we're yeah. going to talk about that, and some of them with with our another guest of ours that's been, that was on... Uh, uh, a few days ago, uh, uh, Joseph Citro, the two of you have been working on some projects together that he was able to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but first kind of give, uh, uh, people will, we will show that links in the show notes for the, the previous interviews you've been on. You're on about talking about historical, the uh, political cartoons and also the history of cartooning. And, and here you're going to be talking about, um, we want to kind of, uh, steer the steer the conversation more into to have people get to know your work specifically as well and you have a few projects that you've been working on um but first you want to kind of give people a little bit just a a, a back of the back of the cereal box uh description of of your history with cartooning what the heck am i (laughs) (laughs) actually this is the 25th anniversary of my launching mr brunell explains it all Wow. Okay. Way back in 1997. It's a political cartoon strip. It used to be in the old Vermont Times newspaper, which uh, unfortunately is no longer here. And it was in seven days for a while. And now it appears in Funny Times, which is a national humor anthology. And it appears on the website of Humor Times, which is okay. their rival. And it, it's appeared in other places as well, some very odd places. For instance, about 10 years ago, I did a cartoon about Oprah Winfrey, and it was picked up by a French publisher, and they put it in their high school textbook about American culture. because they, they And they, there's a whole series of study questions. What does the cartoonist think about Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> so uh, you never know where they're going to turn up. So, um, yeah, I produce two or three every week. Um, Every night I watch the news and make notes about what the heck's going on in the world. And then I go to my studio that evening and churn out another one. So, and, oh. so yeah, you talk to us a bit about that. I know uh, you mentioned in a previous episode about how the the work of a political cartoonist is, it's historical, but it's fleeting at the same time. Yes, Uh it's 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 a very strange genre compared to other forms of cartooning. Uh, it has a very short shelf life, of course, because your cartoons are tied to current events. Mm. And so when the current events are out of the news cycle, nobody cares about your cartoon anymore, except historians. Because years later, they look at your cartoon and it gives them insight about what people were thinking about at that particular era. Because I myself am also a historian, I often look at old cartoons uh, just to 
get a feel for what's going on back then. As you know, I collect vintage cartoon things, and among my prized possessions, I have uh, the very first Thomas Nast rendition of the Republican Elephant from mm. the 1870s and the Democratic Donkey, for instance. Uh, secondly, of course, we political cartoonists can actually affect, affect uh, real-world events, at least we used to be able to. For instance, uh, Herblock, the famous cartoonist from the 50s, was instrumental in bringing down Joseph McCarthy hmm. and uh, later on Nixon. And unfortunately, we're also the only form of cartooning who are in danger of getting killed for what hmm. we do. Not so much here in America, right? yeah. but um, in foreign countries, we all remember what happened to Charlie Hebdo back France, for instance, yeah. years ago. So um, <clears throat> it's a heady mix. Political cartooning is also the oldest form of cartooning. Long before there were uh, comic strips or comic books, there were political cartoons. Benjamin Franklin drew uh, political cartoons back in the 18th century, for instance. And because you you kind of lean more towards, as I say, like the political cartoons, as as uh, Mr. Burnell explains it all, and you also do a lot of other projects do you is it in your cartooning dna that you always have do you do you catch yourself putting in some social commentary even in your evergreen work uh it sneaks in there yes i definitely have a point of view <laughs> and my cartoon strip is not just about politicians per se it's also I also comment on social trends and fads, and because I'm a retired teacher, I do a lot about education and the interplay between education and politics, for instance, like what's happening in Florida right now. Hmm. Uh, so that's a major interest of mine as well. Right. So talk to us about, it's interesting is that you and uh, Joseph Citro have been have done a lot of projects together, but, and on first blush, uh, one would presume that the two of you have been working together for 30 years, but you've only recently been working together for, uh, just about a 10 few, years, actually about 10 years. Yeah. Um, we, we first met, we knew about each other for years, but we never actually met until hmm. about a decade ago, primarily through Facebook. Okay. That we met in person, and uh, we found we had a lot in common, and we hit it off uh, quite well. And we've been working on one project after another ever since. We both lament that we wish we had met each other earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had a hilarious project years ago called Vermont Lifer, for instance, which was a parody of Vermont Life magazine. He says, I wish you were around to work on that. We would have had so much fun. <laughs> but so we're making up for we're catching up for lost time here right so he talked to us about uh and i'm really curious to talk to you about your your latest project with him which is the and this is a working this is a working cover that we're looking at called vermont horror infamous tales of terror from the green mountain state and this is going to be a comic book correct Yes, this is going to be an actual comic book. It's going to have five of Joe's stories illustrated by me. And the premise is that he and I are sort of paranormal investigators. And um, we, he, uh, 
Okay, but does he uh, writes the story in such a way that first he he gives a historical exposition, and then he and I go out and we investigate, and and uh, you have to read it to find out what happens next. <laughs> so it's part spooky and part humorous. It's all right. done sort of tongue in cheek, but they're all true stories. They're all based on actual folklore or um, stories that he's investigated in the past. So there's some monsters in there. There's going to be one about Bigfoot, and there's going to be um, some good old-fashioned ghost stories. And, mm. and these are going to be are these Vermont-based? Yeah, they're uh, all stories? Vermont stories. Okay. And um, in fact, the one I'm working on right now, Matt Anthony, is about a ghost that's seen in two places: uh, Fort Ticonderoga and Lake Memphis Magog here in Vermont. And that's the crux of the story: is how can one ghost be in two different places? So. Mm. Going to investigate that. Right. The longest and spookiest story is going to be about the infamous pig man, which was, <laughs> which is a real monster, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. We'll, we'll see. So, I'm curious because it's kind of the ghost story piece, which is Joe Citro's bailiwick, but they're comic books, then, which is your bailiwick. So, who approached who for this idea? This was Joe's idea. Really? Uh, yes, it okay. was. He, well, what happened was, let's see if I can find it. In when we did the Vermont Ghost Experience, right? he came up with the idea that one of the stories, instead of just illustrating it, I should do it as a comic book. Okay. So the St. Albans story uh, is a six or seven page comic book. And we liked how that turned out. So I did it again in the Vermont Ghost Guide. We did one as a comic uh, book style story. So that put the idea in his head that maybe we should just do a bunch of comic books because mm. he has always had an interest in comic books. We're both big fans of those great old ones, the, the, the Warren publications, Creepy, Eerie, Tales from the Crypt, and all those great ones. From right. So my idea in doing these black and white, we, we decided to, the one we're doing now, to do them in black and white instead of color as an homage to those old Warren comics, which are always black and white. Right. And so what's your, what, what, what's the time frame on this? Like how many? Well, how, I have all the roughs done. So we've roughed out the stories. As Joe probably told you, he, uh, he writes the script oops, as a, like right. a screenplay. Then I uh, do rough drafts where I quickly break it down into panels and figure out how much dialogue is going to go in each panel and so forth. And then he looks over the roughs and makes notes and changes. And then once that's done, then we go ahead and make the, the finals, which is what I'm working on now. So all five stories have been roughed out. So now it's just a question of converting them into the final versions like the one you I would love to have this done by early June so that I could have them in time for the Rail City Comic Con. Hmm. But if I can't get it done then, I definitely, we definitely want it done by the Halloween season. Right. Because that's our busy season. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to have it done by October 1st at the very latest. Wow. So I, I was curious about this is that as, you know, and as an, when an author writes prose, they have a relationship with the reader. So the reader provides the imagery that the writer sets up. So 
when you as the illustrator, the artist for the comics, in a way, where does your loyalty lie? Does it lie to the reader or does it lie to the to the, the one that gave you the script? Well, I follow Joe's lead and he often makes suggestions about what he thinks we should be looking at. Right. So he'll say, here's a piece of dialogue and I think this is what should be happening. Then I visualize it and then he looks at my visuals and the roughs and said, well, you know, make some tweaks, you know, like in one panel, he said, I want the arm, the guy's arm out like this, you know, or something like that. So then I make the changes and then we go from there. Um, yeah, so it's just a collaboration back and forth. We're in communication every day via messenger and so forth. And right. I'll send him what I've done and then he'll send me notes about what things need to be changed and we go back and forth about it. Right. One debate we had, should the font be all caps like in comic books or should it be small letters like like a book right and we went back and forth about it and we finally agreed that it should be small like a book so in the roughs everything's all caps because that's what i'm used to when i do my comic strip right but um i agree with him now that i see it that it looks better doing it like a prose right so, because that ties it in with his books better. right yeah, because it's it's a way. It's like it's a it's a graphic book, like right. and you know and stuff. Like, you know, it's like yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's what I had done. Um, that's the way I, I did it when I did the Saint Albans story. Okay. And he right. liked how that looked. So. Yeah. Um, so that's right. the way we're going to do it. And that yeah. also gives us the option of certain words are capitalized to emphasize them. You know, if this character's screaming or something, you know, right? It gives us more leeway, right? If everything's always caps. <laughs> and when it comes to the horror aspect of it, how important is it to, especially when you're talking about monsters? Is there a a a, a, a tell but don't see kind of situation where? Uh, yes, no. Uh, in the Pigman story, there's going to be a lot of hinting. And then, but then there will be the jump scare, you know, like you have in the horror movies where we do finally see the monster, you know? <laughs> but um, we lead up to it, so we build the tension, right? Right, yeah. as I was telling him when I'm doing the finals, I want at least one panel per page to be the wow panel, right? You know, either the most elaborate or the biggest, or like the one with the skeletons in the cave, you know, that's that's the wow panel, yeah. Right. Ta -da! <laughs> and, that, um, and I make a lot of use of gray tones and controlling the light because I'm a painter and that's what I do. It's all about light. Hmm. So I'm, I made the decision visually to not go with a lot of cross hatching and that sort of thing, but instead spot the blacks and then put in gray tones. And I'm even occasionally going to use a photograph like Fort Tai. Mm -hmm. um, because I think if I drew that, it would be so murky, it wouldn't reproduce well because it's so detailed. But keeping it as a photo makes it more real because everyone's familiar. That's really Fort Ticonderoga, you know. So that'll ground people in the reality of the uh, thing. Right. Now, how many is this going to be a limited issue series or is this going to be, this is good. Um, We're going to self publish it. So it's going to be print on demand so we can make as many as people want. 
Okay. And like I'm doing with my other cartoon books, I'll always have a bunch of them on hand to sell at Comic Cons and so forth. Well, I mean, like as an as an issue wise, is it going to be five issues or is it going to be six? Well, we don't know. We'll see. There's going to be five stories in this one, and we're going to see how that goes and how it looks and what the price point is. We don't want to make it so big and bulky that it's too expensive and people don't want it. Right. But we also want to make it substantial enough so people think they're getting their money's worth. Right. So we settled. Um, I think each page, each the Pigman story is going to be ten pages, and the others, others are going to be five pages each. Mm. So it'll be twenty or thirty pages in all, plus introduction and so on and so forth. So, so roughly around the same size, a, a standard comic book is going to be. Yeah, that's what we're aiming for. Right. And um, because of your inspiration of it being from like you know the the nineteen fifties, or is there going to be a letters page? at the end of it hmm. we hadn't thought about that that's a good idea yeah. <laughs> if we make more of these maybe people will write us letters or right like we'll issue number two letters. yeah i was thinking it'd be fun to have a page of those silly advertisements that they used to have in the bag of comics you know x-ray right. specs or yeah. own your own submarine <laughs> inflatable frankenstein <laughs> so uh if we have time we may do something like that too right yeah we'll yeah i would love to have a you you got to have a letters page especially if you're going to be doing more, more issues of like issue two issue three issue four yeah well we'll certainly put in our contact info our emails so right. that people can write to us if they want to if they like them yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, right so i want to talk to you about also your other project that is would this, would this would this also be considered a pandemic project or is this something that is you're talking about my book here yeah this began as a project for the space gallery if okay. you look behind me you can see a poster with the different um knees um so this is what we're talking about robert is the uh if if mr brunel was drawn by Famous dot dot dot. Yeah. The theme, the theme of the Space Gallery show, which is still up right now, by the way, was April Fools. Mm. And so Christy Mitchell, the curator, encouraged artists to come up with something different, unusual that they don't usually do. So it occurred to me to do this uh, idea, you know, choose some of my favorite cartoonists and imitate their style and draw myself, Mr. Brunel, the main character of my strip, as if they was drawn by these other cartoonists. And it proved to be very popular. I did 30 of them and turned them into a big poster, which is framed. and It's in the show now. Oh, wow. And people liked them so much, I did an additional 30. And so I put all 60 together in this book, and um, which I just put out. It's interesting, as you say, you know, if Mr. Brunel was drawn by, uh, you know, famous cartoonists, it's amazing to see especially as you know we're talking about like say like james thurber or robert crumb or you know your one of your favorites you know windsor mckay that you we talk about a lot at what point as you were doing this did did you actually have did you actually have like a a pre-generated list of all right these are the cartoonists i'm going to write or did you just have something that was like 
five or six, and then the list just kept getting bigger and bigger, as you said. I want to learn. Uh, yeah, I RPG. began with maybe a dozen of my favorites, and then I thought about it some more and said, oh, yeah, I remember this one. Or, yeah, how about this guy? And then actually, as I started posting them on Facebook, other people would post saying, hey, you forgot so-and-so, or how about <laughs> doing this one? So some of them are requests okay. that, that other people wanted to see, like Sierra Aragones here. Right. And um, Roland Emmett, one of my favorites. And um, I also, yeah, so part of it is a request and part of it's my personal favorites. I, I had some parameters. I wanted to choose cartoonists that had a very distinctive style hmm. so that you could tell immediately who it was. Some cartoonists are brilliant, but they don't have a distinctive style. Right. Edward Gorey has a very distinctive style. Yeah. Secondly, I shied away from comic book artists because I'm not terribly interested like the superhero genre and that sort of thing. Right. And those guys all have kind of a house style, you know, so they're very similar to one another. So it's very hard to pick out unless you're an obsessed fan, which I'm not. Right. To tell the difference. Whereas these guys like Opera here, they had a very distinct style and you could tell right away. Right. And because I'm a historian, I'm interested in the old ones, you know. So I picked out some that go way back that perhaps younger people have never heard of. So to educate the young uns about the history of cartooning here. And I would think that probably, yeah, some of your your latest ones are going to be the ones from the 60s. It's probably like your newest cartoon. Yeah, my interest dates, the oldest one probably is uh, Sir John Tenniel. Right. Going back to the mid 19th century, there he is, who was famous for illustrating the uh, Alice in Wonderland books. Yeah. And he was one of Punch magazine's first cartoonists back in the 1860s. Yeah. So, yeah, right up until the so called modern cartoonists. See, going back a ways, when I was a kid <laughs> reading comic strips in the 60s, it was the tail end of the first generation of great cartoonists who had launched their strips at the turn of the century up through the 30s. And they those strips are now coming to an end in the early 60s. And then there was a second wave of cartoonists, people like Charles Schultz and um, Johnny Hart, and those people, um, Russ Meyer, who uh, started their careers in the 60s and 70s. And they had a very different drawing style, very loose and mm. more cartoony and more modern and um so now those are all all old guys and now we have a third generation of cartoonists who have completely different way of doing things did you as your work I'm, I'm i'm really curious to see that when you were creating these is were these all digital or did you use these through um pen and you know pen no, and paper or these are all digital drawings okay I would find a reference photo that I liked. This is Gene Ahern, a major hoople, one of my favorite characters from our boarding, boarding house. Um, I would find a reference photo to look at, and then I would go from there with Peter Arno. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter Arno is interesting. He invented the single caption gag cartoon. Really? Yeah. Okay. Prior to him, cartoons had lengthy dialogue underneath them. I had an example of one of those Victorian cartoons in the group issue. I don't know if you saw it, but 
cartoonists in the Victorian era thought of cartoons like stage plays. So they'd write out dialogue underneath, he said, and then she said. And they became known as the he and she cartoons. Okay. And Arno uh, was one of the first New Yorker cartoonists, and he dispensed with all that and came up with the idea of just a single line underneath the panel. Okay. Now, did, when you were when you were putting these together, did you see any generational generational commonality of artists, like a style or like a a, a pen weight or something along those lines as you're doing this? Every era has an overarching style. Really? Okay. And if you look at lots of cartoonists over a long period of time, you can tell, yeah, this is from the 20s, this is from the 30s, this is from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Because they would look at each other's work and they'd copy each other's work. And if you're a young cartoonist in 1920, just starting out, what should a cartoon look like? Well, let me look at what Charles Dana Gibson's doing or right. <laughs> Frederick Burr Opper and I'll, or Windsor McKay, and I'll imitate what they're doing. So every cartoonist, Every new generation had an idea of what a cartoon should look like, you know. And <laughs> then some trailblazer would come along and change the landscape a little bit, and then they'd all imitate him, you know. So you could tell cartoons made, say, in the 50s, like Peanuts or mm -hmm. in the 60s, have a certain look about them, very similar, uh, to very different than, say, cartoons made in the 30s. If you look at or cartoons that were made at the turn of the century, right? So, what did you see as as you're as you're doing this that has inspired um, any any tweaks to your style? Well, one of the things I had to do was resist the urge to correct the cartoonists <laughs> when I was imitating their style. I had this urge that, no, that's not how you draw an ear. No, that's <laughs> not how you draw a nose. I should do it my way. But then I said, no, no, no. I got to imitate what they're doing. I can't make it look like my. So all I did was add the glasses and the mustache and the beard to make it Mr. Burnell. But otherwise, I kept their style. Right. But um, I realized uh, it, it renewed my admiration for some of them, mm. some of their attention to detail. And, and how elegant their line was, you know. Some were highly stylized, like Skip Williamson, who did Snappy Sammy Smoot. I don't know if I sent you one of those. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. His cartoons were so stylized that they were almost, oops, they were almost illegible. Here's, right. Here's that. that that's Gann Wilson. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Skip Williamson. Yeah. It's interesting. The underground cartoonists were greatly inspired by the cartoonists of the 20s. And um, uh, Robert Crumb, for instance, if you look at his style, it's a very old-fashioned, cartoony kind of style right. that deliberately adopts from the 1920s. His character, Mr. Natural, is actually inspired by the, uh, the hitchhiker character in um, Gene Ahern's cartoon strip, um, Squirrel, The Squirrel Cage, that came out. Okay. And uh, Major Hoople yeah. here. That's another Gene Ahern. Yeah. From our boarding house. 
In fact, I remember reading once that when the underground cartoonists got together in San Francisco, they chatted amongst themselves and they all decided to adopt an older cartoonist drawing style. Oh, really? So Bobby London imitated Elsie um, Seagar's uh, rendition of Thimble Theater. So his cartoon characters all look like they were drawn by, by Popeye, you know, the Popeye cartoon strip. Right. And Crumb, as I said, was very influenced by the characters of the 20s and 30s. So have you, and, and I guess, you know, it's what, what, what I love about your work and what I love about your art is that you, and just your style itself, is that you are a perpetual learner. Like you're always, you're always learning. So let me ask you is with, with the fact that, you know, you, you embrace this through a digital, digital format, have you been able to pick up any new techniques through the digital art that you, you learned? Um, Hmm. Yeah, um, I'm still somewhat behind the times. I know there's a lot newer and slicker programs out there. When I chat with our fellow cartoonists at the Vermont Comic Creators Group, they always mm. talk about some great new gizmo and so forth. So <laughs> I'm still about 10 years behind the times on that. I'm still using this uh, Wacom tablet. Right. And I'm just using good old-fashioned Photoshop to create those ones with Joe. But I've learned it inside and out. I know how to make it do what I want it to do. So I really don't need anything else, I guess. Right. I did do a series of pen and ink, old, old school pen and ink drawings for, uh, you probably saw them at the Groupie Gallery show because um, they were originally in the uh, Studio Place art show that I had. A few months right. Ago. So every once in a while, it's fun to go back and do it old school. But um I think I've mentioned this in a previous interview, because I'm a political cartoonist and I have to work quickly, doing things digitally is a great time saver. Right, right. Yeah. And and so what when you worked on these cartoonists, what were some of the ones you thought were going to be easy to reproduce that you're actually surprised about how complex the the uh, the work was? James Thurber. Really? Okay. It's the simple ones that are the hardest to imitate because there's their style is so simple. Every line means something. Okay. And you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to put in too many lines. You don't want to um, fix their style. In other words, <laughs> Thurber drew the way he did because he was blind. Uh, he lost an eye in a childhood accident and his other eye was uh, pretty poor. Mm. So he uh, could barely see what he was doing. So um, Siguero Aragone is another one. Uh, very simple, simple style. Right. Which means that you're working without a net because anything can go wrong. You know, the, the slightest misstep. Whereas the more complicated ones like Gory, you can get away with a lot because he has this very dense... Dense lines. Line with lots and lots of uh, cross hatching and so on and so forth. Yeah, I gotta say that your your gory picture is amazing. I love how that turned out. Well, this is based on one of his earliest books. This is his character, Mr. Earbass, who appeared in one of his first books from the fifties called The Unstrung Harp. Hmm. And he later changed his style somewhat. His early characters had these elongated faces. 
but as he went on in the 60s and 70s the characters developed more rounded faces right so if you look at a gory made in the 50s and one made in the 70s you'll see a huge difference right i remember hearing an interview with him on terry gross once that he was complaining about how he'll spend days you know cross-hatching wallpaper in the background of <laughs> i'm wasting so much time <laughs> but what i liked most about his stuff wasn't so much the the spookiness i loved how he was imitating 19th century engravings that mm. was what his whole shtick was and because i love 19th century engravings um, that's what first attracted me to his to his work right so you have you, you have the, this book just came out, just yep. just published, um, and and people can people are able to get it at uh, they Amazon. can get it on Amazon right now. Yeah. Yep. So sixty four pages. How many how many pieces of art are in this one? There's sixty uh, sixty cartoonists, and each one I put a little historical info underneath their their dates and. Um, and what they're best known for and why I chose them, you know, what they mean to me personally. And so forth. Right. Right. It's part history and part personal reminiscences. Is there going to be a part two on this? Are you still doing this? Are you going to, I still doing them. Um, I was just, <laughs> I did two series. I just started the third series, but I had this other project with Joe to work on now. Plus I should point out, I have to churn out a bunch of paintings because I have a show coming up at the uh, Emile Gruppe Gallery in June called The Old Neighborhood wow. Paintings Based on Vintage Photographs. And this is the flood of 1927 in Rutland. Just finished this. But I got to do uh, about a half dozen more between now and June. So that's going to take up my time. So I probably won't get around to doing another one of the cartoon books until this winter, maybe. Is it you? You're. There's there's no moss growing on this running stone. You are you're always doing something. Well, <laughs> Joe remarks about that too. I am what you call a um slow motion hyperactive. <laughs> I have the physical metabolism of a three-toed sloth, but mentally I'm uh, going every minute. Right. Um, so I'm like a glacier. I move slowly, but I never stop moving. <laughs> Part of it is because I have a touch of obsessive compulsive disorder and I can't go to bed at night and sleep if I haven't done something creative that day. Right. And as I get older and you feel the heavy hand of death on your shoulder, time's running out. So let's <laughs> not waste time. So I have thousands of projects up here. Right. And and as time goes on, I have to scramble. I want to get them all done before it's too late. Right, right. So what? So let so let me ask you this then, from that from that perspective of your idea piece, what? At what point do you say if you have ideas, how important it is for you to be the creator for it or the one that actually does it? Say, hypothetically speaking, you have one of your ideas in your head. Uh, what's preventing you to? like connect with another artist to say, I have a project. I don't have, this is a back burner project, but I want it to be on the front burner, but I can't put it on my front burner. Can I hire you to do project X? 
what what's preventing you from doing that? Money. <laughs> the key word here is hire. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, all my projects are, are highly personal and uh, right. Okay. I love to collaborate, but I wouldn't farm out an idea to anybody. No. Okay. Right. And, um, yeah, no, I, I couldn't see that. No. Well, I'm just what, like some, like, cause I know, and, and you know, we were, we were talking earlier, you also worked on a, uh, um, a, a co you just did a comic book too, uh, a superhero comic. Yes. That was a project. That was a group project. Uh, initiated by um, uh, Greg Giordano and Mike Wagner, it's the common, not common domain. Yeah, common domain. Uh, uh public domain. Public domain. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, yeah. Uh, the idea was to choose some character that's in public domain and create a new story around them, mm. and that's been a lot of fun. Um, and I guess they've recruited artists from all over the world to work on this. Right. And I'm hoping it's nearing completion. It's been on the burner now for about a year or more. So I'm hoping it comes out soon. But you actually printed that out too, right? And you actually were saying Well, yes. Uh, I sent it to Greg. And um, what my take on it, I chose um, an old character from the 40s, Moon, Moon Girl. Right. And um, my take on it was now she's an old lady in a nursing home reminiscing about being a superhero back in the forties and I touch on things about, um, <laughs> she's very cynical now she's in a wheelchair and she's chain smoking. She's talking about back in the day, this is how we did. <laughs> like, did you have a secret identity? Yeah, we had to, we broke a lot of expensive stuff. So we had to <laughs> buy our real identity to keep the insurance premiums down. <laughs> so, but I, I went back to the source and I found a lot of original uh, drawings and so I imitated that style as closely as I could to mm. uh, especially going the retro ones where we jump back and forth in time you know. right and, so one, and, one, and one of the other projects that you worked on that's just that 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 is new since you were on the show last was your monster maps yes yes the monster yeah. map that was yeah there it is that was who the we did the we did the monster map and then the haunted house map and uh, we did the monster map first and it was such a hit that joe again these are both joe's ideas mm. joe came up with the idea let's do haunted houses and um we had a hoop doing them we had to choose a monster for each county and a haunted house for each county and mm. when we were choosing the houses i told joe pick houses that are interesting to draw because <laughs> he knows i like victorian houses right so we, we chose the most elaborate ones <clears throat> on the monster map, uh, <clears throat> Bigfoot was our floater because Bigfoot's found everywhere in Vermont. Right. So we said, if we got a county and we can't find a monster for it, that's where we'll plug in. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, though, I mean, my, my hometown, Groton, Vermont, I was happy to see that for Caledonia County, you had Groton's Godzilla. Yeah, Groton's Godzilla. Yeah. yeah. What, what's, what, what's the story behind that one? Um. It's just a giant lizard, I think. Um, the monster map was an offshoot of a book that Joe had done with Steve Bissett about 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, he illustrated that, the Vermont Monster Guide. And um, Joe could tell you more about the backstory of these monsters. Right. Uh, the one that I found most unnerving was the human-faced calf. 
<laughs> uh, because that drawing is based on a real photograph. That thing really existed. Really? And it looked exactly like you see in that drawing <laughs> way back in the 1920s. It was pretty spooky. Wow. Uh, the awful, uh, we mentioned that in our book, The Vermont Ghost Experience. Mm. Supposedly, um, that inspired H.P. Lovecraft to write a story. Really? Yeah. And the okay. pig man, he's going to appear in the book we're working on now. Right. Down in my home uh, county of Rutland, we have the human-faced bats. And then, of course, we have vampires and lake monsters. And right. The Thunderbird. The Sidehill Croncher is a great piece of hilarious folklore. Um, the deal on the Sidehill Croncher was that the legs on one side are shorter than the other, so it can walk around a mountain. And <laughs> and apparently some individuals have legs on the left and the other have legs on the right, so they can meet each other as they come around the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, and this was, and, and this was, uh, you know, one of your, one of your projects that you also presented at the, the, lat the latest convention you went to. Yes. Uh, they were a big seller. People loved them. Um, right. uh, sold quite a few of them. So People let me would look at them and say, yeah. And they would always look for their County. Oh, what's going on in my county? <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm, on I'm... the haunted house map, the most famous haunted place in Vermont is Emily's bridge. Right. And so many people came up to me last weekend at the at the con and said, Yeah, I went to Emily's Bridge. Scared the heck out of me. <laughs> yeah, that's right in uh right in Stowe. Yeah. 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 And um Joe gets tired of talking about Emily's Bridge because it's like the most famous haunted place in Vermont. So anytime he does a lecture, someone in the audience will inevitably ask him about Emily's Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> So, I'm I'm curious too, and we 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 had a we had a previous guest on who uh, is also back in the uh, in the convention scene as well. So, how being in our I like to say this from a, a serial optimist, we are in the we're in pre post pandemic right now. Right now, right now. So, what did you see as going back to conventions? What are some of the things that you? Um, you've seen this kind of changed in, uh, in how things are set up in conventions now. Well, um, masks, of course, some people had them, some people didn't mm -hmm. people, social distance. There wasn't any handshaking or anything like that going on. Right. Um, other than that, it was pretty much the way it used to be. I think, um, people, I think people have been housebound for so long that they, were looking for an excuse to get out and do something. Right. So, you know, the attendance was pretty good. Um, yeah. So I, they remind me of the comic cons that we did back before the pandemic, really. I didn't see. Well, what were some of the positive changes that you think will come out of this for, for convention wise? The pandemic? You mean? Yeah. I don't know. Positives. Uh, as I said, except there's a pent up need to go and do things. Right. So I think as restrictions lift further, I think, yeah, I think people are going to want to go out and do these things. Right. As I said, I'm going to be doing Rail City Comic Con in St. Albans in June. I think it mm. is. And um, that's the only ones I'm going to do this year, I think. Right. But um, I know other people in our group travel all over the place that 
Heather Farrington, who's next to me at the last one, said she's going to Boston to do a huge one. Oh, wow. So uh, they're, they're coming back, and I guess the great big ones are going strong. Right. And, and as a, what would be some of your advice for, for folks that say, hey, you know what, uh, you know, Robert, I got, I got a comic book. I'm, uh, I, and, and, you know, I, I started doing my comics during the pandemic. I got some good stuff. Uh, how do I, how do I go to a convention? How do I table at a convention? What are some of your advice that you would give people as a seasoned, uh, well, con- start with vendor? a small one. Yeah. Uh, something local. So you don't have a huge cost outlay. Um, you need a lot of product to fill your table. Obviously hmm. you want to get your costs back, you know, so you want to calculate how much the table costs and how much you think you're going to make. And is it worth it? Hmm. I would argue that even if you break even, it's worth it. If for no other reasons, you make contacts, you network, you meet fellow artists, you meet buyers and collectors, and people remember you. Right. If you do the same one every year, I had a lot of repeat customers come back and say, I remember you last year. I, I wanted to get this book last time, but I didn't have the money, so I'm going to get it now. <laughs> so if you do the same ones over and over again, you build up a, an audience, you know, a following. Right. But as I said, you got to have a lot of product. Right. If you've got nothing to sell, then it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And you're a big proponent of Lulu. Is that where you would tell people if people have books? Is it, is, would you uh, tell them? That's the one I use because I find it user-friendly. Uh, Joe recommended that I try a different one that he has in mind. So if people, uh, uh, if, if, if people wanted to actually get, you know, find your books and stuff like that. Those that might be listening that aren't, aren't local. What's the best place for folks to, uh, check everything, out your Everything I've made is on Amazon. Okay. Or they can go to Lulu. Okay. Um, and just look up my name and they'll find everything they need mm. there. If they want to look at my cartoon strip, go to humor times. And there's a link on my website and I upload cartoons every week there, and they got about 300 of my cartoons at least. Wow, okay. Um, if you want to spend a, an afternoon reading my cartoon <laughs> strip, there, there you go. You got hundreds of them to look at. Right. Yeah, very excited. Yeah, very excited the, to see uh, to see your, your upcoming comic with, uh, with, with, with Joe Sitcho. That's going to be exciting stuff. And... Um, and, and people can also go to mrbrunell.com and there you'll have, you have links to your, maybe yep, background. I have links and, to everything there. Yeah. Um, the various books that I have out at the moment and um, there's yep. the ghost guide and the maps. And then you can also see my paintings there. Right. And my cartoon strip and the whole shebang. Yeah. Sculptures. You're like you said that. Yeah. There is, you're doing okay, all right. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I have my finger in every pie, as I say. <laughs> and people can check out your other articles and some of the and some of the reviews and some of the things about your. Um, and you're also part of the, you know, the Northern Vermont Artists yeah. Association. We're going to be so. having our 92nd annual June show coming up this summer. Wow! So stay tuned for that. And um, as I said, I'll be having my show at the Group A Gallery at the end of June. And. Um, what else have I got going on this summer? Rail City Comic Con coming mm-hmm. 
Great. Yeah. So th thanks a lot, Robert, for coming back on. And as I say, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you the, I'll send you the, the, the PNG file I have of, uh, the logo of that called friend of the show. I'll send that your way. Okay. So, yes. And yeah. uh, as soon as you polish this up and put it on YouTube, I'll post that on Facebook. So yeah, everybody can hear it. It's always yeah. fun. And, uh, I'll be happy to come back anytime. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Robert. And, uh, once again, looking forward to, uh, checking out all your new stuff that's coming out soon. So you have to come back on. So I talked to Joe that we should get the, both of you on together to talk about your... We were thinking about when the book is finished, you should have us both on and we can chat about it. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. That'd be fun. Perfect. All, all right. right. Well, thanks a lot, Robert. Yep. Bye-bye. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that that you have since we talked last. So this is your third time on the show, and just so you know that uh, I had a previous guest who was on three times, and he made the comment that if you're on three times, you become friend of the show. So <laughs> officially, Robert, you are now get to be friend of the show. So there's a special well, spot for you on my web on my website for you. I'm so, honored. <laughs> just like johnny carson always had don rickles on every 